welcome. Here at The Bridge Church, we exist to help you connect to God, grow with family, and serve our city. We hope today's message will allow you to grow deeper in your connection to God. Enjoy the message. Let's pray. God, this is why we come together to hear the word of God go forth, to sing to you, to hear us say something like nothing can separate us. No height, no sin, no past, no shame. Nothing can separate us. Throughout this week, there may have been a lie that creeped into our mind that something could separate us. There may have been a lie that creeped in that made us feel like we could not come back to you. And yet the Bible is so clear that if we draw near to you, you will draw near to us. And so God, we gather here today as a picture of wanting to come close to you, God, and draw near to you, God. And so God, we pray that today as we sing these songs, deepen where we're at with you. In this room, in this room, we're all at different places. You and the individual know exactly where they're at. And so God, if we could just take a moment and for each person just to pray, God, show me where I'm at right now, God. Show, show me where you and I are. Show me where I might be missing you. Show me where I am fulfilling what I dreamed our relationship could be, but show me where am I? Where am I? Father, we pray that because this is a moment marked not by the words of men, but governed by the word of God and the Holy Spirit is the one doing the work, you will meet us where we're at and you will speak directly into our relationship with you. Deepen us wherever we are. Deepen us wherever we are. God, I pray that in this time that I would not rest on man's wisdom, that I would not rest on eloquence or preparation, but I would rest solely on the person of the Holy Spirit. And this time would be a demonstration of his power and of his words. And God, we pray at the end of this time, we know that you have spoken. In Jesus' name we pray and all God's people said, amen. So good to be here. So good to worship together. So good to be able to sing those songs. Great to hear JJ uh, give that incredible testimony. What a praise. Let's give it up for what the worship team did and all that. It's awesome seeing somebody come when they were a high schooler and now growing up in the name of the Lord and giving their testimony. It's an honor to be able to see people grow under our under this roof and in this house, praise God. But now we are in our last sermon in our series called The Naked Truth, walking through the Song of Solomon. And we pray that this has been a blessing to you and a blessing to your relationships. It's been amazing walking through this series. And as you look, you're seeing a man and a woman interact about relationship. Uh, they would eventually become a husband and a wife. 
And so in this song of Solomon picture, we're watching people grow in a relationship, grow in intimacy, and we've talked about reconciliation, and we've talked about conflict, and we've talked about sex, and we've talked about all these different areas that run the gamut of a relationship. But now we're entering into this final moment in, in Song of Solomon chapter 8, where we're going to get a picture of marriage. In this final stance, we're going to look and we're going to see how uh, there are elements of marriage that we need to look at again, and uh, we are going to take some time to review what an Old Testament Jewish wedding would look like. We're going to talk about what their, the periods and the times would look like. And the reason why we need to look back at that is because there's one part of that wedding and one part of our weddings today that we tend to overlook. If you were to ask me, what's the most important thing that I say during a wedding? It is this, till death do you part. Because it's a picture of permanency. We were with a friend the other day, and my wife and I were, were joking around, and she, my wife was like, would you, if I died, would you get married again? I'm like, no, baby, there's nobody like you, you know what I'm saying? No. <laughs> And she was like, you would, I, you would, you know, and I was joking with her, would you? And we were going back and forth. And our friend was there, and she was like, y'all are acting like the only reason you would leave one another if somebody died. And we were like, yeah, yeah, that's, that's, we said till death do you part. And she was like, oh, yeah, I, I kind of see that. And I was like, wow. It's amazing how those words are said in every wedding and then ignored three years later. Think about the permanency of death do you part. I'm going to be there at your grave to put flowers on your gravesite. And certainly there is adultery and certainly there are pictures of abuse. Absolutely, things happen. But the reality is most people get divorced out of inconvenience because it's not working anymore and they fall out of love. And so today... As we talk about marriage, we're going to walk through what an Old Testament Jewish wedding would look like, and it's going to speak into the potential marriage for some of you or the marriage you have, but it will also speak into the relationship with God that you have. In the Old Testament and in a Jewish wedding, they were arranged very different than today. In an arranged marriage, obviously the dad would make a decision and the the dad would make a decision on the other side, but they would arrange it. And in the arrangement period, uh, after you arranged it, it would be called the betrothal period. The betrothal period was similar to what we call the engagement period. The betrothal period was different, though, than engagement because the betrothal period was as permanent as marriage. So if you got betrothed, that meant that you were definitely going to get married to them. And the only way to break off a betrothal was divorce. So it was that permanent. During that betrothal period, the time would begin where these two would want to learn more about marriage. So the son would get with his father and the woman would get with her mother. And they would go through the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, and they would begin to talk about what does it mean to be a man of God? What does it mean to be a woman of God? What does it mean to be a father? What does it mean to be a mother? And what does it mean to be a husband? What does it mean to be a wife? The woman would be prepared by the mom. The man would be prepared by his dad. 
And when you look in the book of Song of Solomon, you're going to see this picture, this moment where the family is all around making sure that the people, the folks in their family are prepared for marriage. And for the woman, more likely than not, what they would talk about is purity, making sure she was ready. And if you look in the Song of Solomon, there's this incredible picture of the family coming together to make sure a daughter was prepared. Look in Song of Solomon, chapter 8. Song of Solomon, chapter 8. And it says um, in verse 8, these are the brothers talking. And it says, we have a little sister, and she has no breasts. And what it's talking about is she's young, but what shall we do for our sister on the day when she is spoken for? What are we going to do to prepare? This is the family saying, how will we prepare our sister? And it goes on to say, if she is a wall, we will build on her a battlement of silver. But if she is a door, we will enclose her with boards of cedar. Well, look there. If she's a wall, we'll build on her a battlement. Understand during that time, if there was a wall, like a fortress, um, there would be a wall and there would be people trying to attack a kingdom. So what they would do is they would build on top of that wall what was called a battlement. You've seen it sometimes in movies where there'd be an archer that would be able to put his bow down to someone attacking a fortress. And it would be this little slot, this little space where the archer could shoot down that bow. That was called a battlement where you'd build on top of a wall, a place where people could fight on top of the wall. And what they're saying there is, and this is in the context of purity, if she is a wall, if no one can get into her place of innocence, then we will partner with her to make sure she is pure. We'll build on top of the conviction she already has. But if she's a door, if she's a door, then what we're going to do is we're going to enclose her with boards of cedar. A door has hinges on it, meaning a door can be closed or can be open. And what they're saying there is if our sister opens herself up, if she has the potential of opening herself up to lose her purity and lose her virginity, what we will do as her brothers is we will build a wall around her so that she does not lose the very innocence she so wants to have. And so the question the family would have to ask is, is our sister a, is she a wall or is she a door? And as a church, what we've tried to be is, and what we've tried to say is we're not like a family. We are a family. We're a family of God. And some of us had mothers and fathers that raised us in the admonition of the Lord, but some of us did not. Some of us are here trying to figure out our walk with God together, and we have a Father God that puts us in this community, and we are to be brother and sister. But the problem is, is that we haven't lived with you to know you, so here's the deal. You have to let us know, are you a wall or are you a door? You have to have the, your own introspection to know, I'm a wall. Ain't nobody getting in on this. Oh, no, I'm a wall. Partner with me. Yeah, get the crossbows. Build on top of my wall because ain't nobody getting in. But you might need to be honest and say, I'm a door. I open up. I have the potential 
of opening up to people that may want to get in. And so I need you to build a wall around me because I may not be able to stop myself from opening up. Did you see those hinges on me? I have the potential of opening up and I need you to come around me because there's times when I can't stop me from doing the things that I know I should not do. So, so the brothers would say, do we need to build a wall around her? But in this community, we have to have you tell us because it's weird when we figure it out. It's weird when we go, she say she a wall. I looked at her Instagram though. Look, look, look like she a door. And this is all I'm saying. Oh, I'm not saying this to be embarrassing. I'm saying we are in a community together to fight for purity because God is our Father and we want to get our greatest joy from Him. And we don't want anything to ruin that. And so what we want is to partner together. And so there takes a level of honesty about where I am at with purity and, and, and honesty about where I'm at in community. And so what we said was that in the previous message, well, I think my, maybe the first one I gave, that the best things you can do when you're, in a, when you're in a period of preparation before you get married, whether you're dating, whether you're engaged, whatever, the key is, is that you guard talk, touch, and time, right? That, that you, you be careful about how much you're talking with the person, how deep you go, how much you touch, and, and how, much time you, <laughs> how much time you spend. And I was at one of the city groups, and I was asked, well, just, I mean, give me some details. Break that down for me. Give me some clear rules. Like, what does that look like? You know, and every time I've preached this, there's always that question, like, give me some details, give me some rules. What does that really look like? And I've come to the conclusion that because I really don't know where you're at, it would be weird for me to give you a rule. Don't talk to the guy past 10 o'clock, or don't go over the girl's house at all. Or, for my wife and I, we didn't kiss. I told you that, and people bugged out, and somebody died. It was crazy. <laughs> we had to resurrect him. It was an awesome Sunday. But we... I didn't kiss my wife because I was a door. <laughs> and I knew where I was at. And I know if we kiss, the next time we get together, my, my body is strategizing. It's, it's already a, it's a wrap. I already want something else. So what I had to do was set my own rules in place and, and I was told early on in my walk to set the fence so far back that you would never fall over. When I was a kid, uh, we had a driveway, and there was the street, and my mom, she would let us play out in the driveway, but what she did was she put a white chalk line. If you would say the driveway was about 10 feet, she'd put the white chalk line about at 6 feet. And the reason why she did that is because she knew I'm going to put the line to where even if my son goes over about two feet, he's still not in harm's way. So you set the fence, you draw the line so far back that you would never fall into a place where you hurt yourself or hurt someone else. And as I said in the first message, what would be awesome is if our men start drawing the line. 
It's, it's hard. It's, it's difficult when the woman has to draw the line because then she has to start leading. So it's weird when a man says he's leading, but he's the one creating and, and breaking the boundaries. Leaders make boundaries. Re- leaders bring order. If you want to lead, lead in purity. <laughs> so what is the principle? The principle is Proverbs 4, guard your heart. Guard your heart and guard her heart. Because that's the, it says, from it flows the wellsprings of life. And so in this season of preparation, they were not just guarding the girl physically, they were guarding her from going to a place of intimacy that she would regret once she got into a marriage, if, if that was what God had for her. Now, <clears throat> whenever I say these things, there are some people who agree and there are some people who disagree. And I've had, I mean, I've had meetings for hours and just disagreeing. And, oh, I don't know. Where's that in the Bible? And blah, blah, blah. Like, hey, some of these things are clearly in the Scripture, some of the things not. And they want all these details. And this, so this, is, this is the conclusion that I've come to. When you spend a lot of talk, touch, and time with someone, you begin to feel married to them. And you begin to create this level of exclusivity with them. And you're spending all of your time and you're touching them in all these places and you're talking all deep. And what that begins to feel like is an imaginary marriage. Now, you can disagree with that. You can say you're crazy. This is a pastor. I don't know what you're talking about. You're stupid. But you may not feel like it's an imaginary marriage, but it will feel like a real divorce when you break up. I guarantee you that. Oh, you don't have, I don't need a verse. I can tell you that right now. It will, it will feel like a real divorce. And the problem is people bring so much baggage into a marriage because they've had multiple mini divorces. Your heart wasn't made that way. You weren't made to have your heart broken 10 and 20 times. So what I'm trying to tell you is don't just guard against not having sex. Guard your heart. Because it's crazy if you go into a marriage and, you, and, and yes, you may never have sex, but your heart might have been broken multiple times. And when you get into your first argument, you know what you're going to think about all those times where your heart was broken. And you're going to say, even though we're married, he's just like them. Or she's just like them. And so guard your heart. And this was an issue of guarding their hearts. If we were to look back again at the, the picture of an Old Testament marriage and wedding, they would, in this time, they would, uh, the, the woman says this, she, um, or it, just to jump back into this picture of uh, purity and the intensity of it, look in uh, chapter 8, verse 6. The woman says to the man, set me as a seal upon your heart. Listen, listen now. My, my poetry people, I need you to make a, a poem about this or something. Make a rap song about this. Look and listen to what she's saying. Set me as a seal upon your heart, as a seal upon your arm, for love is as strong as death. The word seal there, it's where we would get the word of a, of a signet ring. So when I say signet ring, you can kind of hear the word um, insignia or signature. And so people uh, during that time would have a ring with their insignia or they would have their letters or their name, and that was purchasing power. 
So you would go into a shop and it would give you credit. So you could put your letters down or your insignia down and that was a statement of saying, oh, this butter is yours or this wheat is yours and you put your signature or your insignia on it. It's your seal. And what she is saying is, place me as a seal on your heart. I want to know that you are mine. And what she is saying is indicative of how we've been made. We have been made to be jealous, that we don't want them to be with anybody else. That's why it always hurts. Jealousy never feels good. And what's interesting is I know people who, who will say things like, you know what, I got to the place where it don't bother me no more. You know, because I know how people are. They cheat and do stuff, so it don't bother me no more. And I thought, you know, what's crazy is, yes, there is a level where you've become so callous where you don't feel that because you don't want to feel that anymore. But, like, we're human and we've been made to feel. We've been made to hurt. We've been made to have these feelings inside of us. And, um, you know, if you look on National Geographic and you see lions, right, and a lion will go up to another lion and they'll just have sex and walk away. And they don't have a conversation. They don't go deep. He, the lion will go to another, just somebody else and have sex the next week. And that, 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 that female lion isn't frustrated about that. That's just the way it is in the jungle. In many ways, when we get to that place of callousness where we don't want it to hurt anymore, in many ways we're living subhuman. We're not allowing ourselves to feel the way we've been designed. You've been designed to be jealous, to want that person to only want you. That's, why, that's the way God designed you. And, and when, this, when this woman says love is as strong as death, she is saying, if you were to leave me, it would feel like I am dying. I'm so open to you. I'm so in love with you. We're so connected. It would feel like I am dying. And, and in many ways, I would want to take you out. I'd be so frustrated. One of us would have to end. <laughs> love is as strong as death. The intensity of those emotions and so she's saying jealousy is unyielding as the grave. It burns like a flame. And so this is why, again, it's so important to protect again of that moment. Um, if I could, um, for, for those that are single, I do uh, want to give you uh, just some allusions to what a, what a wedding would look like. But again, I want to tell you how this really applies to you, even if you were to never get married. In, a, <clears throat> in an Old Testament wedding, one of the things that they would do is um, the, the son, once he came to the conclusion that this was the woman he loved and they had the marriage arranged, then the, the son would end up contacting the dad and they would have a little ceremony. The son would go over to the father of the bride-to-be and as he talked with him, he would give him a marriage contract. This marriage contract, in, in essence, was saying what he would do and how he would be. And then he would give the father a payment. It was called a dowry. And this dowry was a bride price. So he was actually giving money for the young lady. Not in exchange, but it was actually a statement of value and worth. So the man would give his best. He would go and he'd get like his greatest 
uh, at that time, it would be livestock, his greatest livestock. But whatever it could be, he would give his very best as a picture of thanking the father for how he raised his daughter, but also a picture of how valuable she is. Then the man would pour wine into a chalice, and he would walk over to the woman. And this is the moment that many of us have seen during the engagement where a man gets on a knee and he has the ring and he looks to the woman and she says yes or no. At this time, they would take wine and put it in the chalice and they would walk up to the woman, the man. He'd walk up to the woman and give her that chalice full of wine. If she accepted and drank, it was yes and everyone celebrated. If she rejected it, it was no and the marriage would never come to be. At that point, everyone's excited, and the man knows this will be my bride. The betrothal period would be about a year long, so now the man would go off, and he would go off with his father, and he would go and he would build what's called a chuppah. A chuppah was a room that you would build out in your father's house for the woman to come to one day. He would build this room, and it would be adorned with gold and silver. It would have all these amazing things in it so that when the woman walked in, she would feel honored and loved, and the father would oversee the project. It was not until the father said, it's time that the son would know he was done, so the son would be working, 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 and the father would say, not done yet. You need to put some pictures up here, and he'd work, and he'd work, and he'd work. He'd say, no, not done yet. There, there needs to be some more things, some Put, 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 some, put a, put a uh, uh, like a dresser over there or whatever, but he would make the room beautiful and the father would then say, now's the time. It's done. Now's the time. And the son would say, okay. And he'd run off and he'd go in front of his bride-to-be's house with his friends and they would blow what's called a shofar. And the shofar was this incredible horn that they would blow. And as the horn would blow, the whole city would know that this was the time that these two would be wedded. And she would come out and they would celebrate. And it was this incredible picture. And then there would begin a week-long feast. A week-long feast of celebration. A week-long feast of laughter. The bride-to-be and the groom-to-be would fast. Every place they would go, people would celebrate them. Whenever they were seen out in the street in the city, people would know that those two would one day be together. The day of the actual wedding would come. When the wedding time would come, there was this incredible moment where the priest would explain what a covenant was. A covenant, you've heard the words before. The word in Hebrew means cutting. A covenant in the Old Testament was made between two people that were coming into an agreement. When you would make a covenant, you would actually take an animal, maybe like a bull, and you would cut the bull in half. And you would lay out all of the bull. And then what would happen is the two would walk around the parts of the bull. And they would walk around it and walk through it seven times. And as they walked around it and walked through it seven times, they would say to one another, if I do not keep the covenant, may what happened to this bull happen to me. The covenant was so strong that what I was saying was only death could keep me from doing this, what I've pledged to you. If I don't keep this pledge, 
may death come upon me. And so they would take, the priest would take the hand of the man and the hand of the woman, and he would take a dagger and he'd cut into the hand of the man and cut into the hand of the woman, and he'd have them both up there holding hands, and then he'd tie a cord around it. And as he ties a cord around it, he would pray over them, and he'd pray that they would keep their covenant, and he'd pray that they would stay one flesh. And they would go off. You know, <clears throat> in Song of Solomon, chapter 8, verse 7, the woman says, Many waters cannot quench love, neither can floods drown it. And then she says something real interesting. If a man offered for love all the wealth of his house, he would be utterly despised. You know what she's saying? I know what's waiting for me. I know I have a relationship waiting for me. And if, if someone were to even offer me all the money they have, I would despise them because I don't want to give up my purity. I don't want to give up the purity of a relationship with my husband to be. No, nothing is going to take away the love that I have for them because I know what's waiting on me. I know what I have. And so she says, that would be utterly despised. That's beneath me. Um, I had a really good time going to the uh, Crown Heights City Group this week. Crown Heights in the building. And, uh, you know, it was good talking to, to folks. And I asked some questions about, you know, how do I prepare this week? I'd love to, you know, if there's anything I haven't said, let me know. And, and you know, several people had questions and thoughts. And, you know, what do you do with online dating and, and other things? And, I, you know, I don't have great answers to that. You know, it's a struggle. Praise God. I mean, a lot of this is you have to apply you have to apply the principles here because when you try to online date, you're starting off on this foot of romance and, and they're looking at you. And so they're already kind of checking you out from that kind of standpoint. I'm not saying it's evil. I'm just saying it, to me, it's similar as to going to the club. You know what I'm saying? It's just like they're just looking at you. And so it's challenging and difficult. Um, but I don't think it's sinful or evil to do that. But one of the questions that was also asked to me is, well, what about single people? Like, James, let's be honest. Is everybody going to get married? Is everybody in this room, on the sound of my voice, those listening on podcasts, are you going to get married? And in the way the culture sets it up, that wholeness comes from marriage, oh, I know we say you complete in Christ. I know that's what we say, but what we put on display is that marriage is what makes you whole. That's what our culture is, is putting on you. And so if we're honest, if I were to say only Christ completes you, you, you're married to the Lord, there'd be a lot of people say, yes. And then they walk out of here and be like, nah. It ain't the same. That's a, that's a nice illustration. It's not the same, right? And the truth is, is that it's not the same. Having a relationship with God that's called a marriage is not the same as actually being in a marriage. That's true. Cannot lie about that. And yes, we've made it very clear, marriage is difficult. And it's so funny, when you talk to single people, you're like, you know, marriage is tough. They're like, mm-hmm, I wish I could be in the struggle. You know what I mean? So people, you know, you try to tell them, 
You try to tell them, slow down, it's tough. They're like, well, I'm just, I'm ready. I feel like the Lord has set me up for now. Now is the time. But what series like this can do is sometimes it can make you feel like marriage is the thing you're waiting for. Like it's the thing. And even when we tell how hard it is, it it still can be tough. Let me just, in closing, kind of give you a picture. If you were to look in the New Testament at some of the things that Jesus said, someone who was Jewish, who had an understanding of the way weddings worked, would have understood some of the things that Jesus says we already have. I mean, maybe there's something we already have. See, the way the Bible pictures it in Ephesians 5, it says the church is the bride of Christ. It says the church is actually in relationship with Jesus, and Jesus is a husband, a groom, and the church is his bride. And we are in relationship with him. But you say... Come on, James, that's a good analogy, but that's right, because it's an imperfect analogy, because what we're in is in the betrothal period. We're in the season of preparation to be with him. We're not with him yet. So right now, we're with our fathers and our mothers preparing, going through the word of God, preparing for that time to be with him. We're in the betrothal period, so we're waiting to be with him. So the reason why it doesn't feel right is because it ain't right, because we're not with him yet. So, but there, but, and I say that not only to those that are single, I say that to you, to your married too, because if you think that marriage is a solvent, talk to married people. You think you lonely, imagine being lonely and being married. That's a whole nother sermon for a whole nother day. But, but marriage is not the solvent to your life. And the reason why marriage is not the solvent, because it is a, it is an illustration with imperfect people talking about what God has done in our relationship with us. And so, Jesus, when you heard him say, it is finished, that word, it is finished, it actually is a a word that says, it is paid for. And when he's saying it is paid for, it was like he was paying our dowry. And when he paid our dowry, he didn't pay with a lion or a bull. He didn't pay with good livestock. He paid with his own life. And he says, that's how valuable I believe that you are. I'll shed my blood, and I will go to the Father, and I'll pay for you. And that was your dowry that he paid that day. And then when he went off, you see, when he went off, he did not come to us with a chalice and say, take this wine. But whenever you take the communion wine, and and, and it talks about, I think we have it up there, the the picture of 1 Corinthians chapter 11. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, it says, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, it says that um, in the same way he took the cup, and after the cup he's saying, this cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. In many ways he is passing that chalice to us, and he's saying to us, will you be with me? The covenant in my blood, it's the picture of this wine given to me, and as I drink it, every time I drink it, I say, I accept you. I accept the covenant that you're having with me. I accept it. 
And you say, well, those are cute analogies, but is there more? Yes, because I talked about the chuppah, the room that he built. But Jesus, Jesus said this room that he would build, he said, my father's house has many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you that I'm going to prepare a place for you. And if I go prepare a place for you, I will come back to take you with me, that you will be where I am. He was building the bridal room for you and him so that you might be together. And then, oh, once the room is finished and the father ends up saying, yes, the room is done, the shofar will blow. But that is a picture of 1 Thessalonians 4 where it says the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel and the trumpet of call of God. And that is the shofar blowing God saying, now is the time to take your people back with you. And it is this beautiful picture of what God is doing. And then there is the marriage and there is the wedding feast. And in Revelation 19, it says, let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory for the wedding of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. And so what it pictures is eternity as this being not just a week-long feast, but an eternal feast with our God, always celebrating and always rejoicing with him. And as you look at those illustrations and you have those analogies, in your mind, you say to yourself, those are good. Those are okay. But it's still not marriage. It's still, I still see, James, you don't know what you're talking about. You don't know what it's like to be alone. You don't know the pain that I feel. I may not. But the truth of the matter is that all those pictures are God-giving illustrations and illusions just to scream at you and shout to you how much he loves you. And when you look to the cross and all those analogies, something in your heart just has to say, I believe. At some point, you just have to say, I believe that this is better than what marriage could ever be. Because if being loved by God was being married, then there's only a few of us who are actually loved by God. But if God's love was demonstrated for us when he poured his life out, then we all are experiencing the love of God. Because the cross of Christ was for all of us, all of us to enjoy and all of us to experience. All those illustrations and pictures are for us. And today, my prayer is, is that you would take that chalice that he passes to you. Today we have our, our Connect team. They're going to pass to you the bread and the wine of a communion time. And in that time, my prayer is that you would apply in your heart and your mind the truth that he is passing to you this chalice. And he is inviting you into deeper relationships. Even now, let me pray. Father, in the name of Jesus, we just pray that you would give us this moment of surrender to you. Help us to apply these great, great truths. Help us to see that in 1 Corinthians, the blood that was poured out, that was you passing us this chalice 
and telling us to drink. Father, let this moment not be just a moment, not just a moment where we hear old truth. Help us to engage this truth. Help it to be real in our lives. Let all those illustrations and all those pictures make them come alive. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. We hope you've been encouraged by this message. We'd love to hear how God used this sermon to speak to you. Please take a minute to email us your story. Our email address is info at bridgechurchnyc.com. And you can also find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram by using at bridgechurchnyc or visit our website, bridgechurchnyc.com. Thanks again for listening to this week's message.